How many how many Brunch of Nerds reference can I get in that will later be cut from this? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 27th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. Just uh, furiously uh, finishing up the rabbit hole uh, mid-show. Don't mind me. <laughs> if if only people knew how often that happened. <laughs> hey, you know, I try to get it in before we press record. This time I <laughs> ran a, a little out of time, but it, it'll it'll be worth it. So worth it. Very looking forward to that. Uh, and from Los Angeles, this is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. It just shows the difference that Neil is writing the script for the later part of the show while talking. And I'm just sitting in the car. Like <laughs> um, well, if any day you had an excuse, it's today. Happy birthday, Jeff. Ooh, thank you. Thank you. It's the, uh, you know what my birthday is? It's the anniversary of the 1986 Mets winning the World Series. <laughs> wow. That's that's fun. I bet that was fun when you were a kid. I don't know how many years it is. Uh, you know, 2020 minus <laughs> 1987. We'll let Neil figure that out. I'm not the math guy. <laughs> not the math guy. I mean, it's arithmetic, but... Uh, it was 30, 34 years ago, but this will be the 35th World Series since then. So wait, Jeff, how old were you when the Mets won you a World Series? Well, this is kind of a sneaky way of uh, me disclosing how old I am, right? I was, uh, no, that was the day I was born. <laughs> yeah, right. Wait, what? <laughs> no. That's a lie. That much I know. For yeah, you and I are not the right. same age, Jeff. <laughs> I was eight. I was eight. And I was there. <laughs> That were you, you really? Were? I was there, yes. And they had to uh there had to be a rain out on the 26th after after the Buckner game, which was the 25th, to to make it on the 27th. So there wow. you go. That's that's memory. What only. a great childhood baseball memory, man. And and the Mets that was just the starting point. They went on <laughs> and won many more championships <laughs> after that. They won Two years later, in 1988, after beating the Dodgers in the NLCS, <laughs> and then they won in 2000 over the Yankees. 2006, 2015, you know. I've often thought, like, my Twins fandom peaked when I was very young because they won those two World Series in, you know, four years, and then nothing. And I, I didn't realize, because I was a kid, that that was, like, pretty special. It was not going to happen again, ever. <laughs> If I had only known yeah. then, I would have, I don't know, savored it more. I was a kid, so who knows? But you, yeah, and you feel compelled to now say that to any kid celebrating a title. Like, I'll see a little Laker fan around here and just be like, enjoy it. <laughs> may never come Adults back. Adults ruining children's <laughs> memories. This <laughs> could be the last time you ever feel this. Although, to be honest, if they're Laker fans, that probably won't be the last time. Or if they're <laughs> yeah, like okay, Boston maybe. fans, it's like, okay, uh, you'll feel this again next year. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, well, before we really get going here, I wanted to bring up one piece of news at the top, um, though it can be easy to focus on all the normal things going on right now. We are still in a pandemic. On Sunday, ESPN's Adam Schefter reported that Raquel Armstead, a running back for the Jacksonville Jaguars, is still dealing with complications from COVID-19 that have landed him in the hospital twice. He has apparently faced significant respiratory issues and he will miss the season because of them. Armstead is only 23. His 24th birthday is on Friday. He ran a 4.45 second 40-yard dash in the 2019 Combine. I bring that up to say that he is extremely healthy. He's he's in the best shape of his life. Um, if this disease can strike down an incredibly healthy NFL player, it can hit any of us. So please stay vigilant. Please wear a mask. Please remember that we are still battling this disease, um, even while we try to make the best of it uh, with sports in the middle of all of this. Also, everyone vote. Also that, yep, yep, we're a week out from that too. Things are things are normal, but not at all. On today's show, we'll reflect on the first five games of the World Series, which could end tonight. We'll talk about what the Los Angeles Dodgers and Tampa Bay Rays have done to make this a wild and entertaining series to watch. Then we'll switch over to the NFL and take a look at why the New England Patriots are struggling and what, if anything, is to be done with Cam Newton. 
And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Entering Game 6 of the World Series, the Dodgers are up 3-2 with a chance to close it out tonight. This series so far has been jam-packed. A crazy Brett Phillips walk-off slash double error in the bottom of the ninth of Game 4. Clayton Kershaw finally conquering his October demons with wins in Games 1 and 5. Manuel Margot trying to steal home. (laughs) It's been a lot of fun, if not a little bit bonkers. On ESPN's Around the Horn, Pablo Torre argued that the Margot steal attempt on Sunday in Game 5 was grounded in cold, hard stats. The Tampa Bay Rays, and I can say this, are the nerdiest team perhaps in pro sports. They worked the odds on this, Tony. They knew that Margot trying to go Robbie was going to be a better percentage chance than, yes, let's acknowledge what I just did there. That yeah, was yeah, 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 uh, yeah. It's a better incredible, percentage actually. chance than Kevin Kiermeyer <laughs> trying to get a hit against Clayton Kershaw. So it did not work out, but yep. the statistics and those headlines that would have been all made it to me absolutely worth it. So first of all, Rays manager Kevin Cash said that was Margot's decision and not a directive from the bench. So I'm not, not sure they did work the odds there. But let's say they had. Was a steal attempt the right move there, Jeff? Was it worth the risk? Well, all right. So Kevin Kiermaier's up two outs. You're basically, he's not your best hitter. So, I mean, look, I agree that, I agree with what you said earlier, that there's no way that was planned. I mean, my understanding is, like, that's completely the runner's, like, call. Because you have to, there's so many factors. You know, it's how much attention is, uh, Kershaw Payne, where's Turner in relation to like a pickoff move potential? So like there's no, I don't even know if he probably discussed that with the third base coach. I mean, it could be a situation where like he gets on third and Cash is like, if you have an opportunity, take it if there's two outs. Um, maybe he said that before the game, but that's kind of like a deep cut scenario. <laughs> so I, I do think it was um, his call. And frankly, you know what? I'm all in favor of being aggressive. I mean, we, we saw what happened the game before. I mean, you're, you're playing against the Dodgers. They're completely loaded. You got to try this kind of thing. You got to, like, you know, force them to make the play. And, and very easily, as we saw at the end of game four, they could make a mistake and you could have a run. And it's a completely different game. Yeah. And for me, the fact that there were two outs, I think, makes it more justifiable because you know, they had runners on the corners with nobody out. And then Wendell pops not deep enough to advance the runner. Uh, Adama strikes out. And so at that point, you've already squandered like the majority of the scoring potential of that situation. Uh, For instance, when Wendell popped out, the win probability went down seven percentage points. When Adama struck out, the win probability went down nine percentage points. Uh, And then when uh, Margot was caught stealing, it only went down six percentage points. So I think it kind of tells you, especially with Kiermaier up, you know, he has a, I think he had a 683 OPS during the regular season, doing a little better in the playoffs, but you know, not your most dangerous hitter, a 217 hitter in the regular season. Uh, You know, it's, it's kind of unlikely that he would be able to do something. It's a little like, it may, me think of the um the Alex Gordon play in the 2014 World Series whereas if if they had sent him and tried to get an inside the park home run or whatever it was I guess it was like a a, a double and some errors it was, like a, it was like a single and it would have been a three yeah something error. like that but if they had sent him around for that uh, you know, he would have had low odds of scoring for sure. But also what Sal Perez, I think, was the next hitter who, you know, harmlessly popped out in foul territory or something like that. Like his odds of of scoring the runner were also low. So you really have to think about it in framed with two outs, especially framed in terms of what are the odds that the next runner will even get on base uh, and potentially do something good. So, I, you know, I didn't hate it. I felt like they actually had you know, stronger, uh, obviously they had stronger odds earlier in that inning uh, with the runners on the corners and nobody out, but then they had a stronger opportunity even later on in the game uh, and and they um, couldn't score. So they they had chances after that too. I don't know if it's fair to kind of single that out. And for more on that play, feel free to look up a Nate Silver article on the website called Send Alex Gordon. (laughs) I like the the headline there. One of the points he makes in that article, though, is that, you know, Bumgarner's on the mound and, you know, Kershaw's on the mound. There's not you're not going to you have to assume that 
this pitcher benefit of the doubt is probably going to get Kiermaier out. So I think it it it's for the same reason. Might as well like force the issue. Something could go awry. And you make you make Kershaw like have to you know really be perfect there. He could have balked. He could have you know thrown the ball wildly. There could have been a bad tag. I mean, so many things could have happened that allow you to score. When you put the pressure on the other team, you like good things happen. This one, you know, the Dodgers really, they played it perfectly in that moment. Kershaw didn't balk. He had the presence of mind to to do the right thing. But, you know, it's always a good idea to make the, the other team be perfect. <laughs> like good things are going to happen then. And the Royals learn that because <laughs> look at the next year. Lucas Duda all of a sudden is, uh, you know, bungling a throw, a simple throw from first. I mean, they were also and... facing the Mets, so they had I, that added advantage. I, I guess I do remember more. It's another World Series memory <laughs> there. What are we up to? Four? It's a, it's a ton. All right. So the the other the other part of that take was that the the Rays are the nerdiest team in pro sports, which I feel like we're in the right space to judge that. Neil, do you think the Rays are actually the nerdiest team in pro sports, or is there a, a bigger I mean, a bigger nerd out there? <laughs> They're up there, especially with um, you know Billy Bean leaving the A's, although he's left it in presumably nerdy hands, and especially Daryl Morey <laughs> leaving the Rockets. I think. Uh, the Rockets were probably the nerdiest team in sports uh, uh, before this, but I think that you know it's kind of splitting hairs. The Rays uh, are certainly at or near the top of the um, the conversation, uh, and we talked about this last week, where we talked about how they have managed to do it on the the low budget end of things, whereas there's a lot of like big budget, I guess, rich nerds. Would that be the <laughs> There's a lot of rich nerds, uh, you know, kind of horning in on things. Silicon Valley. Type. Yeah, there's Silicon Valley types. I mean, really, like, you know, you think about a lot of the NBA teams and the Warriors are owned by those Silicon Valley types and they're not shying away from, you know, uh, using numbers also. I think most NBA teams are now uh, at, at the same level as baseball at this stage uh, in terms of analytics development. And so, yeah, you know, it's a tough competition to be considered the biggest nerd these days and then you see with the astros when when being a nerd goes wrong <laughs> the, the evil nerds those are the those are the ones to watch out for sports is all about the nerds right now it's all about the lambda lambda lambdas and not the alpha betas <laughs> wow look at the baltimore ravens the baltimore ravens are probably the nerdiest most analytical and the patriots are to the to a certain extent those are probably your two most, and and the Niners even are, are the teams that are are really successful in football tend to be the nerdier ones. It, it it tends to work more than it doesn't. You don't see a lot of nerdy like horrible teams. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I did not see the surprise ending of Revenge of the Nerds being sports domination. I mean, yeah, I don't think it ever did. <laughs> it happens in the movie. Remember the javelin and the whole little mini Olympics they have with the betas. You know? <laughs> Amazing. Um, Neil, you had a great piece up on the site about how the Dodgers sort of recentered themselves for game five after those uh, historic errors um, gave the Rays game four. Just how wild was that Brett Phillips walk off? And, and what did the Dodgers do to gain back control of the series? Yeah, it was pretty wild. So what I did was I looked for the costliest plays that contained at least one error in World Series history. So I can't say what the costliest errors are. Oftentimes the errors will be like someone advances on a throw, but there's also a single and, and it's tough from the play by play to figure out exactly how much the error itself cost. But I think in this case, it was all error. You know, it, technically it was a single, but then once you got that in, out of the way, it was just a comedy of errors. And I did find that that play, since it cost the Dodgers 29.7 percentage points of championship probability, was the costliest play containing an error in World Series history, according to <laughs> BaseballReference.com. Uh, and you, you have some other classics on the list, like, for instance, I, I didn't do a great job with the table and the story of sort of calling out what the play was in like an iconic sense. So I have like 1986, game six, bottom of the 10th, two outs, Mets versus Boston, error <laughs> by first baseman, walk That's off. Like the, the most, that is like, everything that went yeah. into the Bill Buckner play, but it is, doesn't say that it is the Bill Buckner play. But that one, the for essence. instance, 
It does yeah. not capture the essence. They say, uh, you know, there's a reason why they say cold, hard numbers can't really, um, you know, capture the emotion of, of baseball. But uh, that one only cost the Red Sox 21.5 percentage points of championship win probability, even though it was in game six and it was another walk off. So that puts into perspective, I think, just how big of a blunder it was uh, at the end of that game for the Dodgers. Well, the game was already tied. It was so, going to be you know, tied, the- yes. And that that's kind of what I mean when I say I can't disentangle the cost of the error itself out of that because it was going to be tied no matter what. And you could, you know, take it down to 50-50 for that game looking ahead to extra innings. And so it's it's a little bit of a skewed comparison, but still. You didn't look at what it was a wild pitch before. I wonder if that was even more costly than the actual Buckner error. Yeah, or at least as big. Um, But again, uh, you know, if you believe in momentum, (laughs) which we as wonderful stat heads don't as a rule, although I guess with this hot hand research, now we're supposed to believe in it somewhat. You know, who can even keep track anymore? Um, But I will say that if you believed in momentum, maybe you would thought, oh, my God, the Dodgers, they're crushed. They can't possibly come back from this. This is such a mental blow to them. It's it's a gut punch. And then, of course, they just came out and like it was kind of a quintessential like take care of business. Oh, yeah, we're the better team here. And, you know, jump on the other team early, get out of some jams with the help of maybe the caught stealing at home plate uh, and, and, you know, turn it over the bullpen and just, it was very businesslike was the word that I described it because every time the Rays thought about trying to kind of turn the the tide back in their direction and they had chances, the Dodgers were like, Oh no, we're, we're not going to let you do that this time. Sorry. <laughs> well, so can the Rays do anything now? I mean, can they, can they do anything to alter the course of this series, Jeff, or is there, you know, a tweak they could make or, or is the series now more about needing the Dodgers to make a mistake to lose at this point? They have to find a way to win this game and then they have to find a way to beat Bueller. Um, in, in maybe, I, maybe the Dodgers go back to May to, you know, after Bueller in that game. And, you know, even in this game with Gonsolin and Julio Arias, I mean, it's like, it's yeah. tough right now. Um, they, they are not like hitting particularly well with men on and scoring position. And I think they're going to just have to, you know, it's like baseball maxims are going to have to like be a little more timely and a little more aggressive and, and hope their bullpen holds up. Nick Anderson has been awful and they keep maybe, maybe not go to him anymore. (laughs) Um, they need to find some way some people who are gonna you know maybe i think the rest will help yeah. for sure um having that extra day so maybe the bullpen will come out and you know the bullpens were solid in the last game so um they'll need you know more of that and try to steal home more <laughs> maybe maybe trick plays uh you know ball ball tricks, tricks. Yeah. Where's, the, where's the flea flicker when we when we uh... <laughs> <laughs> they, gotta, they gotta try yeah. everything <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can leave that here for now. Game six is tonight. Game seven tomorrow, if necessary. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the NFL. We are almost halfway through the NFL's 2020 season, and we have a pretty good idea of what each team looks like now. One team is struggling in a way it's not used to at all. The New England Patriots are two and four, ranked third in the AFC East after suffering a gutting 33 to six defeat at home, care of the San Francisco 49ers. Clearly, the arrival of Cam Newton has not brought the dynamic football nerd playmaking offense of Bill Belichick's dreams to life just yet, consistently anyway. During the NBC Sports postgame coverage of the Pats' loss, Jeff Garcia had a very specific criticism of Newton and not just of his performance. You go into this game, two touchdowns, four interceptions. You throw, what, three more interceptions? You get yanked in the second half. There's nothing good going your way. Why are you dressing like that to bring more attention to yourself? I'd be trying to ask the equipment managers, put me in your jock sock cart and sneak me in the back door and I'll show up on the field and do the best that I can. This just goes back to a couple years of just watching this guy and seeing him at the podium, but yet what he's doing on the field does not translate to being that guy. All right. What do you guys think about this take? Should 
the NFL fashion police come for you if you have a QBR below 50? Jeff, what do you think? I think he's 100% right. I think when Newton comes to a game, he should have his outfit, and then he should have another more muted, somber outfit, <laughs> like, you know, black jeans and a black T-shirt and, you know, something very unflashy because he doesn't want to offend Jeff Garcia. And if he throws two interceptions, he has to wear or gets oh, if he gets pulled, he has to wear that. He cannot wear, you know, his other outfit because that's just inappropriate. <laughs> you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna defend Jeff Garcia a little bit here, just to the point is doesn't it strike you guys though, if if you're a quarterback of a team and you've played horribly, the team gets boat raced at home uh and you come out wearing you know very flashy uh flamboyant clothes isn't that the sartorial equivalent of doing like a elaborate touchdown celebration when you're down by like 40 like uh, you know it's it's sort of like uh, tone it down a little bit you're you're doing terribly i mean i'll be honest he was probably like a little embarrassed. He like, should have been. I, I think he, he should have like, been. <laughs> but mainly by his performance, I think. But but I don't I don't care what he wears. I mean, I, I, it's so ridiculous. It like, is ridiculous. It I mean, look, it's ridiculous. Not in enough trouble, like particularly the NBA discussing what players wear. You know, like to pre- I just don't care. I feel like, first of all, why why do we even broadcast? or take pictures of players before and after a game. Like, why do we even care? Why are we, why are we concerned with what they're wearing? Or, I mean, it's like, that's not, it's just not, it doesn't, it shouldn't matter. But if someone wears something notable, it gets noticed. You remember the time, like, like Tom Brady wore like an ascot or something <laughs> after the game? Like, that's like, oh, <laughs> man. And we've seen like Russell Westbrook, you know, like wear the glasses, you know, they, they, like they, some of these guys are into fashion. That's an interest. For sure. So for sure. I, I, I absolutely agree. I don't think, I don't think that a player should have to divorce how he is to playing on the field from fashion from what he dresses from what he wants to dress in. I just think that's ridiculous. I also think that there is an element of race in here that is like pretty tricky. Is anyone saying to Ryan Fitzpatrick, Hey, you're bad enough that you got benched for a rookie. I mean, there's other things going on there, obviously like shave your dumb beard. Like no one's saying that for other, like, you know, sort of, you know, flamboyant things. I mean, Gardner, I would say that. I would say that about Gardner Minshew I, and and Fitzpatrick right now. Like shave the mustache. The shtick is not is not working anymore. <laughs> By the way, Fitz Magic has won two games in a row. Yeah, he was not doing horribly. Maybe he can keep the beard. I mean, he lost other games. Whatever. I just think I think that there's why is he not already in Dallas? Has is it isn't Dallas the last team remaining in the NFL that he hasn't played for, or has he played? For I assume there are de- there are trades being worked out. I I just like I don't care about what a player wears. I care about how a player is playing, right? And that's the issue here, and that's what's going on with Cam. Also, he always dresses like this. Yes, yeah. always every game. Like it would be weird if he wasn't dressed like this, <laughs> right? You know, one time he had like a kerchief, like a like kind of like an old lady from like the <laughs> Cold War would wear, you know, like a wrapped around his head. Like um, a Russian like, Russian grandmother. Yes, yes. All right. So this take is obviously a small part of the larger story of the Patriots struggles. Really? This, this isn't the most important thing confronting strangely, the Patriots? Strangely, no. No, we're just going to talk about hats. <laughs> So we all on this very podcast talked at the start of the season about how dangerous the Pats could be with a healthy Cam Newton. Jeff, is their shakiness Cam's fault or is something else going on here? Well, I think it's, you know, it's partly Cam's fault. Look, Brady wasn't, look at what Brady, I I know, I'm, you know, I know we're going to do this because everyone has to do this. This is like mandatory among sports journos <laughs> right now is to compare the Bucks and the Patriots for obvious reasons, but which is fine. But, you know, there's only so much he can do. He's not exactly surrounded by the talent that a lot of these other quarterbacks are. You know, like, look at what Russell Wilson is is surrounded with, DK Metcalf and, and, and Tyler Lockett and, you know, 
Rodgers has Devontae Adams and, you know, Kyler Murray has New Hopkins and like all these guys like have have significant weapons like like who's their number one receiver? Demir Bird? I mean, Nikhil Harry? I mean, like he, he doesn't have much and the defense is obviously not the defense that it was last year. And let's not forget the Patriots before the season got hit really bad by the holdouts. There's several significant holdouts. They're breaking in a new quarterback, a new offense, and, you know, the defense has taken a step back. And this team really was successful last year because of that defense, which even we were saying last year, you know, was a little, uh, you know, misleading in, in, in how they were getting it done. They weren't as formidable as as they probably looked on paper. So, I mean, is there something I think we we are like looking at Bill Belichick and thinking, okay, well, he can fix this, right? Because he can fix anything. But can he? I mean, like, he's not magic, I think. I guess I'm not totally sure. Um, I can never count anything out. I mean, Neil, do you think he can fix it? Or, or do we have to think that the Pats are probably done for this? Season? Yeah, I'm, I'm not totally sure that he can fix it just because there aren't really a lot of options to upgrade the offense and especially those weapons in the middle of a season. Like we've seen the Patriots work magic when it came to running backs. Like remember that one guy who had like the random 300 yard rushing game or whatever it was. And then like never started again was never heard from again. Did I pick him up for my fantasy team? I was going to ask that (laughs) (laughs) he, he won you your, your fantasy league. Um, So we've seen him do that with, with runners uh, over time. And, Again, I mean, he's done some interesting things with Cam Newton as a runner, but I think that the the kryptonite for this Patriots team, and really, uh, I think that's been true even across the last decade, has been trying to find receivers, like wide receivers, in the draft. You know, people are piling on Nikhil Harry because he just has not panned out uh but he's the latest in a long line of guys that the patriots have drafted in you know first couple rounds uh at receiver and they just don't have a great track record for that weird as it is to say about you know the the machine that has been the patriots um and so if you find yourself in this situation where you don't really have uh that many options to rig up an offense in the middle of the season and you have one of the worst offenses. I just don't know what, what you can necessarily do short of, I mean, we've joked that he should be running like the single wing or something, you know, (laughs) some kind of like 1930s offense or something, but I just don't think you can do that in the NFL Yeah, in 2020. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, all right. So let's talk about, about the former quarterback of the Patriots. Cause we, I, you're right, Jeff, we do have to, we can't help ourselves. So the bucks are five and two and Brady threw his 559th touchdown in a blowout win against Oakland. Not all of those touchdowns came in that win against Oakland. He surpassed Drew Brees to become the NFL's all-time leader in passing touchdowns, at least until next week when Brees has a chance to take the lead back. So the Brady versus Belichick thing is, you know, is obviously very simplistic just because the Bucks are doing well and the Pats poorly does not mean that we have a definitive answer there. But what have the Bucks done, Neil, to bring out the best in Brady at the ripe old age of 43? Is it just those extra weapons that he didn't have last year? Well, he definitely has better weapons. I mean, if you're looking at it, he has Mike Evans. He has Chris Godwin, uh, you know, when, when healthy. Uh, he has Scott Miller, who uh, I, I don't think was on that many people's radar going into the season. He leads the team uh, in, in receiving yards with 365. Uh, so I think he just has a lot more guys to throw to. And Brady has, uh, you know, over the years he seems to really thrive off of developing a rapport with specific receivers and being able to kind of connect with them uh, in, in a way that I think he was struggling to do with a lot of these Patriots guys. And certainly none of the Patriots guys have done that with Newton. So it's like a good, but it's not like amazing light the world on fire Patrick Mahomes type, you know, offense, mm-hmm. but they do have the best defense in all of football by EPA and specifically the best against the pass. And I think that that has gone 
a, a longer way toward them being five and two right now and looking like one of the best teams in the league than Brady and the offense have. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, look, the defense is great. And, and Brady knew that when he went there and, and they drafted well. Um, the Antoine Winfield, the safety from Minnesota, the rookie's been playing really well. And like they have major playmakers. Levant David is probably the best linebacker in football. They have Sue, they have Pierre Paul. They got like a, a bunch of real like standout talents. And we always knew their defense was going to be good. And they spent a lot of the offseason, you know, you know, with the draft and, you know, and also free agency, getting a, a better offensive line to protect Brady. And now he's got all these weapons. He's got, Neil even forgot to mention Gronk. <laughs> well, um, you know, I mean, I thought it was assumed. Who, who I <laughs> and looked awful at the beginning of the year, but now it looks he's like doing a lot better. All of a sudden. And Antonio Brown has joined that, that team. So I, like, I'll let you. I just, yeah, I mean, I can hardly even talk about it. I'm so <laughs> mad at it. Like you don't, you don't need that. And you just the NFL just like, you know, going back to the, the, the silly cam, what cam is wearing thing. The, the word on Antonio Brown now is that he's matured. And it's like you're focusing on the antics that he had last year and not the extremely serious allegations against him. Like, just like Jeff Garcia was focusing on Cam's clothing. Like, that's not the issue. The issue isn't whether the antics are better. The issue is this person was incredibly accused of sexual assault and now you're going to bring him onto your team. Like, why? Why do that? Why? Just why? I also don't get Brady's obsession with Antonio Brown. I feel like that that yeah. goes back to like he pushed for the Patriots to get him last year. He was angry when the Patriots um, jettisoned him last year. And that probably played a role in Brady leaving the Patriots uh, along the way. So he seems to have this like, you know, man crush on Antonio Brown uh, that, you know, yeah, you don't need him when you have all of these other guys uh, on the team. And, you know, not that Tom, Tom Brady cares what I think of him, but boy, I sure think less of him that he doesn't care that this guy was accused of raping someone. I mean, that should matter. It should matter that, you, that you're you pushing for a teammate who is likely a garbage person. And to your point, Sarah, I mean, is it, this seems like kind of a league thing, right? Like, you know, um, each team can't be uh, clearly can't be trusted to uh not race to the bottom to sign antonio brown he should you know if we don't want him to play in the nfl he should be ineligible to play in the nfl and that should be roger goodell's decision or whoever makes that call at the nfl yeah i mean you know and he he got a suspension and a suspension for those kind of allegations is still way, way less than a suspension for, you know, marijuana possession or some dumb shit like that. I mean, the the priorities of the league are still just a disaster. I would also like to see Colin Kaepernick get a chance in the NFL with, you know, the kind of quarterback, <laughs> the quarterbacks that say the Dallas Cowboys are are going to have to use because all of their quarterbacks are hurt. Maybe give, maybe someone should give Kaepernick a chance before we get Antonio Brown back in this league. All right. Well, we can't uh, end our football segment here without making our picks in our NFL survivor pool. Neil had a near miss, but the Eagles somehow (laughs) (laughs) the the Eagles had, uh, had the giants on their side and were able to pull out the win there. I love that Daniel Jones falling down with no one in front of him on a sure (laughs) touchdown run. Wasn't even the reason the Giants lost. Yeah. They found another way to lose later. No, it was impressive. That was a game. That was the game where I was like, I can't believe I'm watching this terrible game on a Thursday night. There's really nothing. Oh, there was a debate. That's the other thing I could have been doing. So yeah, this was way better. It was better. Yeah. Um, The Bills took care of the Jets for me, though not without a bit of a sweat. And Jeff's Chargers dispatched the Jaguars also with a bit of a sweat. It was a really. Yeah. It was a little rocky there for me. It was a a tough weekend there, but we all all came through. So the score stands at Sarah and Neil with five points, Jeff with three. Jeff. Oh, man. You can still close the gap because you have the first pick this week. (laughs) Yeah. So the the picks Um, will go Jeff, Neil, Sarah. 
it's a tough week. There's no real obvious ones. Um, oh, wait, I'll take this one. I'm going to take the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you told us you were going to do this three weeks ago. So yeah. <laughs> That's also the most obvious pick to end all obvious picks if you just want the winner. Honestly, I would, I'm would. i praying to lose this one. I sort of wanted you know, the betting against the Jets to backfire against one of you. So I could just, you know, have some fun with that. And I think eventually that may happen. They could win. They were leading. They they had the bills worried. Yeah. Uh, Neil, who you have? Oh man. Okay. So Jeff took the most lopsided matchup of the week. uh, I think it's fair to say. And then the, uh, my second pick normally by the, by the model I already took. So I can't go with them again, which is sad. Who was that? It was going to be the Eagles uh, at home against Dallas. Although, I mean, that's another unwatchable catastrophe of a game. I think I'm going to take Tennessee. I mean, this is on the road, so it's not great, but Tennessee at Cincinnati, you know, uh, I, I'm I'm feeling Tennessee, even though they they came up short on a missed field goal, which seems to be the way that they will lose if they do lose this one as well. Huh, interesting. I am um, I my, so my my two other choices are still left. Now I have to choose between them. Do I take the Packers over the Vikings, giving myself like something to root for in either you know? I can root for both outcomes. Then. Yeah, you've hedged. You've successfully yeah. hedged. Or do I take the uh, the aforementioned Bucks over the Giants, which was my other option? <laughs> I I think I'm gonna go ahead and take the Packers. Um, why not? Give me something to to pay attention to in that game. And if I lose the point in our survivor pool, that'll be fine. It'll be worth it'll be it. worth it. Exactly. Okay, taking the Packers. All right. Well, we'll see how these picks turn out this week. <laughs> go pack, go right, Sarah. Go pack, I, go. I pray. I'm here today, and I have still have three points. You pray. I don't know why I'm talking about this. It's like not going to happen, but it will be glorious. <laughs> Good luck to the Jets. Okay, I think we can leave this here for now. We'll be back for in a moment for a rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we are delighted to welcome 538's designer, the fantastic Emily Shearer. Hi, Emily. How you doing? Hello. Good Good to be back. This is the rare yes. not a uh, reality television rabbit hole that I'm involved <laughs> in. um i love it i love i love all the rabbit holes that that you have done for us here so emily and neil you guys work together on the rabbit hole today what have you brought us yeah so i mean it's the the world series almost drawing to an end uh it will draw to an end this week in fact and uh you know some of our favorite things about uh sports are the weird uniform design elements and all of those things. And so we've been talking about this for a while of doing something about these logos for the championships that various sports have and the patches that they put on the jerseys related to those logos. And so we finally decided to break down and do it this week. So we made a spreadsheet in which we looked at baseball, football, hockey, uh, the NBA and the WNBA uh, and looked at the complete history of the logos for their championship rounds, their finals, etc. And also how how often they put patches on the jerseys and where they put the patches. And Emily, you've you've done a little analysis of these specific World Series logos. What what are your favorites? What has stood out yeah, to you? Yeah, so sort of the World Series is interesting in that it started out 1974 to sort of 77 or so. They sort of had their own unique logo. And then moving into the late 70s and 80s, they sort of reused the formula and that continued. And then sort of around 2000, they were like, we're just going to do something new every time. Maybe it'll be slightly related, but I think that's really fun, especially looking at other leagues. The MLB is sort of like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's make something new. <laughs> and then you can sort of see that in recent years, they've gotten really experimental with um, the really 
playing it up for graphics and TV. So like 2018 has all these different like metallic textures. It's like 3D rendering. I feel like I can hear Joe Buck when I look at it. Is that a good thing or not? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Undetermined. Undetermined. But like 2016, especially, I thought was really good. That was, it was World Series. And then it had the sort of baseball stitching as the sort of motif that they brought through all of it, which was really fun. Um, also with the World Series logos, there is my favorite sort of weird consistency in there, which is that every time the logo has the flags for um, the two leagues on it, the Red Sox win the World Series. So you can see that <laughs> right. in 2004, that they're there. 2007, they're there. 2013. And then they came back in 2018. And I remember thinking, leading into the World Series, I was like, hmm. The flags are there. This this is good. This is good. I feel that's confident. insane. That and is wild. Red Sox won, so <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And then one sort of last funny thing with the World Series logos is that for a stretch of time, sort of from 2008 to about 2012, they decided to like lean really heavily in on the idea of October baseball and the fall classic. To the point where they like brought in all these autumnal colors and there's like fallen leaves integrated into the design. Yes. And it is just like <laughs> such a weird direction for them to go in, but it kind of works. So Emily, what do you think about this year's? Do, do you think it's good? Uh, do you think it's, uh, you know, not as good as recent ones or what, what's your thought? So the on? 2020 logo had sort of a lot of uh, fake digital gold and silver metal to it so it has sort of bevels and gradients and it's all sort of 3d rendered i don't really dig it i think it looks a little too broadcast tv graphics without a lot of other like the thing i liked about the 2016 one was it brought in more baseball imagery and this is just like they're playing for a trophy this trophies are metal metal has texture shiny, shiny piece, piece of metal, of metal. as rob manfred yeah said you know <laughs> that and now we know how he really feels um i think it's also interesting yeah what you said about you know how can we broadcast how can we animate that seems to be sort of like uh at odds with how can we put this on a piece of clothing and have it not look horrible because it's like they've done things with like shiny patches now that maybe try to mimic that look that it gets on tv but then it like it's it's weird to to have the light glinting off at it like different angles and stuff during the broadcast it's like oh, i like a i like a good patch take me back to the to the earlier yeah. days. Similarly, sort of looking at like the 90s logos, they all, at least on the sports logos website, are rendered in this sort of like weird, like brown. It's very flat. And then so looking at it, you can sort of think like in use, okay, this has maybe like a little bit of a metallic thread to it when it was embroidered and that they just couldn't capture that digitally. And then meanwhile, now we have them trying to do all these crazy things digitally that don't necessarily capture in merchandise and patch form. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about one of our favorites. And I think that includes you, Sarah. Um, uh, hockey <laughs> and the history. I think hockey is kind of the OG of logo patches, at least on jerseys. I know MLB started doing it in 1987. NHL only started it in 1989. But 100% of the years that the NHL has had a Stanley Cup Finals logo, they have also had a Stanley Cup Finals patch, uh, which I think really tells you something about their commitment to putting those patches on the right shoulder, except in the cases of the New York Rangers, where the R in the logo conflicts with that. And so they have to wear them on their left uh, arm or almost like way up by the neck and rotate them sideways uh but i i just remember as a kid i think the hockey ones were what made me sort of fall in love with the idea of like just uh, you know i loved the having the patches on the jerseys uh when, when i saw those stanley cup ones and they are also fully committed this is another thing that we tracked in our spreadsheet to the idea of Having the trophy be on the patch and on the logo, 100% of Stanley Cup final logos and patches have also had the trophy 
which is sort of true for the WNBA also because the representation of sort of the trophy or the, the, the ball at the sort of top of the trophy has been on all of the WNBA uh, patches. Uh, but really, the NHL has that iconic Stanley Cup and they've leaned into that, whereas baseball only has depicted the trophy five times in, in the 33 years that they've had a patch and 46 years that they've had a logo. So, uh, And the Super Bowl has leaned a lot into that recently to the point that pretty much every Super Bowl uh, of the last decade plus has had just the trophy like right there. And it's almost like this boilerplate logo design. And I think they stole that from hockey. Hockey was doing that decades before. Uh, but Emily, you you had some thoughts on hockey too, right? So the NHL is kind of a funky league in that they will make a patch for literally anything. Um, so teams have to navigate dealing with um, the sort of alternate captain and captain uh, A and C patches that sort of consistently land on the chest. And then you also have commemorative patches for the league itself. So recently there was sort of the centennial patch that the teams wore um, and that you can sort of see in some of the usage, like it ended up on like the arms, like low down, just because they just ran out of places to put it. <laughs> because you also have um, patches for season. So like the Vegas Golden Knights had an inaugural season. You also had the Bruins recently, I remember had a 90th anniversary season. So like anything that's like the 90th or the 95th or basically every five years, a team gets a patch for their thing. They also get patches for like if they're playing in a new stadium, if they're playing in the same building for like 10 years, they get a patch. If it's the last year in a stadium also, they'll have a patch yes, for that. Exactly. Or like a memorial patch. So it's a lot of juggling that has to happen. And the NHL has made it very clear. I think that the cup patch takes priority unless something like the Rangers jersey where the jersey itself just does, isn't conducive to a patch. But so like in um, the 1991-92 Penguins had, I think, the most patches on their jersey during the Stanley Cup finals. So they had the cup patch. They had the NHL 75th anniversary patch. They had a 25th anniversary patch for the franchise itself. And then they had a memorial, memorial patch for a coach who had passed. So they actually had to I think, negotiate with the NHL to be like, OK, we can't fit all these on the jersey. What are we allowed to take off? And the NHL was like, okay, fine. The 75th anniversary patch can go. <laughs> it seem it has a very like my Girl Scout troop vibe. Like, <laughs> where is the patch for building a campfire? That's what I want to yes. know. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And so then, yeah, we looked at the uh, the NBA and the WNBA as well, and they have kind of a interesting history in the sense that they didn't wear, especially in the NBA, going back to 1986, they had finals logos, uh, but they did not have a patch at all until 1996. And when they started doing the patches in basketball, it was just a tiny little, like, almost you had to, like, bust out a, a magnifying glass to see it. But it was a representation of the Larry O'Brien trophy that was on the shoulders. And the WNBA has been pretty consistent about this um, uh, over the same time period as well, which is putting the jersey, putting the the patch on the back of the jersey instead of the front. And I think uh, the WNBA pioneered this because, again, it was a space issue with the jersey logo, uh, like the manufacturer logo, the league logo, and then also the sponsorship logo. You just don't have room on the front of the jersey anymore to put a special championship series patch. And so you have to put it in the back centered uh, right right underneath the neck. And the NBA started doing this as well starting in 2015. They'd always had it on either the right shoulder or the left shoulder, and it was a little representation of the trophy. And then starting with the uh, first uh, Cavaliers-Warriors finals uh, series, they put it on the back of the jersey. And that, of course, makes it kind of difficult when you're looking back for images of this. And the, the same two teams played in the finals every single year for like five <laughs> straight years. Uh, and they also had there was no difference in the placement of the of the patches. You're like, what year was this from again? Uh, but that, that was a case of the 
WNBA trailblazing that because they started that in 2011. Uh, but I think it was a nod to our corporate sponsorship overlords as much as anything, because the NBA, of course, in recent years has also been allowing um, corporate sponsors on the fronts of jerseys. Yeah. And I think, too, with the NBA, it's interesting looking at the evolution of the logos for the finals um, from sort of 85 to 95. They had that swoopy, the finals text with just sort of like a so, so classy, classy. was just like a year literally just like shoved in the middle that they could change out each year and then they got rid of that from 95 to 2000 and it looked like a video game cover art and it didn't look very good and then they made it look even worse from 2000 to 2003 with these awful bright colors and then 2005 they brought back that swoopy the finals and now it is like I hate the new branding so much because it's clearly what they have for everything. Like they set up a system and it's just like the NBA finals. And then it's the same system where they just delete all the text and they put the draft on it. And then they delete all the text and they put postseason. And it's so formulaic that it's boring. There's no pomp. There's no circumstance. There's no like, it doesn't feel exciting. And the WNBA has sort of taken on that same exact formula from 2016 to 2018 with their branding then. And then they seem to have brought it back as they rebranded. So it's still sort of, you see the same, just like text lockup for the draft, the lottery, the finals, the postseason. It's not very fun. I do have to shout out the WNBA uh, finals branding from 2007 to 2012, which is awful. But like it's it's so wild. It's um, finals is every other letter is capitalized and the other ones are lowercase. And it just like oh, no. it's bad. It's so bad. It's it's the ransom note school of <laughs> finals logo design. Yeah. But yeah, so that that was our, our look at uh, championship series patches and logos. And I'm just glad these things exist. I had a great time going through and looking at all the old images and just, you know, figuring out when they started doing it and the changes that they've made over time. And I don't know, it just feels cool. I like something that makes the, the championship feel special, yeah. right? The, uh, the special logo and the stuff on the court or on the, on the field and on the jerseys, it, there should be some extra kind of cool uh, bells and whistles if you made it this far uh, in, in yeah, the season. Yeah, and looking back, it was interesting to sort of look back at all the football stuff because sort of since 2010 or so, the football Super Bowl logo is the exact same every year and it's very boring and it's just the Lombardi Trophy. And looking back further, it was really interesting and fun. And even when it was just a text mark, they were clearly having a lot of fun with it in the early days. And then it got a little generic in the 80s. And then sort of around 1992 to 2005, they were really fun and played up the location that the Super Bowl took place in every year. So like the two that San Diego hosted have like this very nautical theme, which is really fun. Um, and then also with the Super Bowl, it's just very fun to see how they handled Roman numerals and the insanity of um, having to brand something as Super Bowl XXXVIII. <laughs> I do really love that design really does play a role in this. And it's a way that that sports can, you know, um, can highlight and, and showcase individual the individual years and the individual championships. I think that's really cool. And I hope they keep doing that. I hope it's not just like we are the NBA and this is our logo. <laughs> like I hope they keep it fun. Yeah. And it's bad that it's trending toward in, in many of these leagues, it's trended toward uh, like Emily said, the, the kind of cut and paste, like, okay, this is our perennial logo and we just change the year and uh, switch it in and out the era of the custom logo for each year uh, and doing like cute or weird or experimental things with it that should come back i need that to come back <laughs> that's my only complaint and so baseball i think is the only one that's really kind of leaning into that right now compared with the other leagues uh and and doing just you know one-off designs for each year and i yeah. applaud them for that even if they're weird metallic beveled situations <laughs> yeah <laughs> like in my notes for a lot of these it's like it's weird but they tried something do i think it works yeah eh. but it's it's so much more interesting than doing the same thing every year and just adding a roman numeral to it <laughs> yeah absolutely keep being weird leagues we need it all right emily thank you so much for joining us this was a blast i love looking through these thank you so much great to be here 
That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Metlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Emily, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>